Welcome back, Masters of the Multiverse. My name is Gar Punnett. Today's another good episode. We come with uh, John Strassner, uh, Chief Sustainability Officer for the American Society for Interior Designers. We get to really unpack what goes into the design mentality. How do we actually design the places that we work, live, and play? How do we make them more sustainable? We get to really unpack that and also trying to rethink the white box. That's towards the end. Check it out there. If you have any more questions or you want to join us for more podcasts, check us out at reaply.com backslash multi-useiverse-podcast. John, thank you so much for joining us today. We've got John Strassner here, uh, Chief Sustainability Officer of the American Society for Interior Designers, um, as well as... Rarely on this podcast do we have another podcaster from Break Some Dishes. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. This is, uh, I, you know, I thought everybody had a podcast. <laughs> Not our guests, which is great because we, we get to pull from the knowledge of, of the sustainability world and then not everybody has a sustainability podcast, so this is excellent. Can you tell us first then, though, where did the title come from for Break Some Dishes? Well, Verda and I were, uh, I mean, we've known each other for probably, uh, you know, 20 years or so. And uh, we were having breakfast one day in New York City and really got to talking about, we just wound up talking about sustainability. She knew that it was something that I was really passionate about, I was working on. And Verda was, was turning into this designer who was starting to get a little bit impatient with the industry mm. and she said you know i want to start doing some saber rattling i want to start calling out designers i think we need to do better and we don't have a lot of time to figure it out and so we both decided that we would start to do these um these showroom events these industry in-person showroom events and we said hey listen Verda, you be the voice of design. I'll be the voice of sort of like the disruptor. We'll get a subject matter expert to join us. There'll be three of us. And we'll arrange multiple in-person events at different manufacturers' showrooms. And our goal will be to, uh, to create some awareness, to, to identify those people that are, are doing some pretty cool things and start talking about it. So we want to educate the design community. But at the same time, we want to inspire them. And so I was like, let's just break some damn dishes. You know, we'll go in the kitchen. I had a really good friend of mine who always said, you know, sometimes you got to go in the kitchen and break some damn dishes if you want to get anything done. And, um, you know, I guess it's like saying, you know, to make a good omelet, you got to break some eggs. Exactly. Yeah, and <laughs> so it, we're just a little bit more destructive than that. That's all. <laughs> well, and this is the, you, the cook on the eggs and then the designer on very well-designed dishes that you just need to smash maybe every once in a yeah. while. Um, right. right. I, I loved what you said there about shaking things up, feeling maybe some stagnation from sustainability from the design end. That's not just on the shoulders of designers, nor is it on the shoulders of any one particular probably role in our complex supply chain of workplace design and remodeling and ultimately then living in these working environments. Where does that, I mean, to jump right into it, where does that sort of come from in terms of the design world? Where you will feel there is some stagnation, where you feel like you're trying to, you're always catching up and waiting 
for the next thing to try to advance your industry. How are we, how is that sort of playing out in the design world? I think that that's a really complex question yes. because, you know, I feel like we struggle with this conversation on so many different levels. Um, it's sustainability or, or climate change is a really systemic problem, right? And, and that means it doesn't matter what you talk about, sustainability is there. And so a lot of people think that there's really nothing they can do. It's, it's done. It's, it's things are in motion and I'm one person. What can I possibly do? So it's a really difficult conversation to have. And I think on the interior design side of things, we're, we're very guilty of being not and guilty is not the right word, but the challenge is that interior design is a fashion driven industry. Totally. We are about trends and we are about, advancements. And honestly, it's, you know, design has always been very superficial and, and material. And what I mean by material, I don't mean that it doesn't mean anything or that it's materialistic. I mean, it's material. It's, it's about what materials we use in the spaces we occupy and how all of that affects people. The yeah. people that inhabit those spaces or play in those spaces. And so, you know, designers, you know, if you look at, man, you know, I, it's so funny. I, I just did some, I just did some research on, on change because I, I think the fundamental issue is change. Yeah. We've been talking about sustainability and climate change in the building industry since I've been in it. Mm. Okay. And the building industry still represents 40% of the global carbon emissions. We haven't moved that needle in spite of all the sustainability work that's been going on for the last 20, 25 years, which isn't that kind of mind blowing. Like we haven't been able yeah. to move that needle, which I think is horribly frustrating for people. Right. Do you think there's, I mean, I, this is a raw question that I don't have fully formatted, but there's there seems to be a catch up between action and probably the science of understanding um, what can be done when we talk about materials, when we talk about these complex supply chains of the physical things that uh, get placed in our in our working or play environments. Um, in these twenty twenty five years, where we're f maybe finally catching up to the science of, of hey, this, these materials aren't great, and we need to actually start designing and thinking about these materials a little bit differently. Is there progress? Have we seen sort of the, the waves start to catch a little bit more in the last five years than it has in the last 20? Um, what do you all see in that interior design space? You have, you have to see progress, right? You have to see a better understanding of materials. You, you have to understand that there's more transparency now for manufacturers. Mm. We're starting to understand the supply chain a lot better than we ever did. Yep. And the more we understand it, the more complex that conversation becomes, right? Yeah. So you're always like, damn, I got I to do more. I got to do more. But I, 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 funny story. So I always talk about 
climate change and sustainability. I always talk about this conversation and I use the same anecdote. I have a really good friend of mine who was um, in Mexico City on business. And after dinner one night, he got mugged. And when he told me the story, he said, yeah, somebody came up from behind and grabbed me in a bear hug. And my first reaction was to laugh because I thought it had to be a friend or somebody who was coming up behind me and just like giving me a bear hug until I got picked up and thrown on my shoulder and then my wallet and watch and all that stuff got, then I knew I was being mugged. And so, you know, I've always used that as an example of we don't ever think it's going to happen to us. This is, we grew up, we grew up not talking about the planet. It wasn't something that was vulnerable. It wasn't something we ever had to worry about. I, I grew up probably never, never saying the word planet, let alone we have to save the planet. Who would ever conceive that the planet would need saving, right? And I think what happens is I just read about this the other day, and I got really excited about it because um, there's a book that I, I've, I read a long time ago, and I, and I brought it back out of the mothballs, and I dusted it off because I was thinking about why can't we change our behavior? Because I was reading about green technology. I'm going down a tangent here, but that's why you have editors. We have green technology, which is really exciting. But the, the thing that makes me tap the brakes a little bit on green technology is it gives us um, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, I, I may not have to really recycle because, you know, somebody's going to come out with a piece of technology. You know, I don't have to worry about my carbon because we have these carbon capture technologies now that are really going crazy. And Iceland's got the, you know, the Omega Project or whatever that thing is called. <laughs> and green technology can make us feel like we don't have to change. Right. And so I was thinking about this and I pulled that book out and the book says there's actually something called ego defenses. It's something Sigmund Freud came, he discovered however many hundred years ago, whatever. And it's one of his premises that still survives today. And, and what an ego defense is, it's this. So say for example, you're overweight, you don't diet, you don't, you don't exercise and you smoke in cigarettes and you get chest pains one day. So you go to the doctor and you're in the doctor's office and you're terrified because you got chest pains, you know, you're out of shape. You're really unhealthy. And the doctor says, Hey, listen, here's the deal, man. I mean, you're, you're just a walking heart attack. It's going to happen any day now. So either you go home and you, you start eating salads and you give up the cigarettes and you, you start, walking around the block or, or you're going to, you're going to be back in my office and we're going to be doing open heart surgery and I'm going to be putting stents in and everything else. And you're scared shitless. So you go home and you tell your, well, no steaks for me. I'm going to eat healthy now. And Gar, guess what? You do it for like a week. Yeah. And then you're like, Hey, I'm fine. I'm fine. Because in the back of your head, you know, you got an option. There's always open heart surgery. And, and maybe a more uh, relatable version is just to say, you, you know, you go to the dentist's office and the dentist says, hey, uh, look, how's the dental health? Are you, are you flossing regularly? And you lie through your teeth and you say, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I am. And you go over to the dentist's office and you start flossing because you're like, shit, man. <laughs> oh, God, gingivitis, by God, not, not for this guy. And you're, and you're flossing like a maniac. And again, a week later, you're like back to your old routines. Ego defenses. Yeah. And I think that's what keep, it, it's what keeps nine out of 10 people from changing. Nine out of 10. That's pretty that, dramatic. That's, that is pretty dramatic. The, where does that play into, you know, where does that play into the mindset of design then? Because I'm curious then how that, how that sort of, at least, I mean, 
this is the best compliment I ever probably received was that I, I think design adjacent. Um, and it's like, that was like that. I, cause I love design. I'm constant, Yeah, exactly. I, I just, I love it. I think about it, but I'm not it. And it, I, there are professionals out there that consistently can deliver on well-designed spaces, clothing, all of that. But what I do love about whenever I'm diving into change is in design is parameters. And understanding parameters then can lead to other creativities. Now, is that really what we're getting to, which is maybe we can't design our way out of this because we keep thinking, eh, there's a solution. We're probably going to find a solution. We're probably going to innovate our way out of this. Where does that come into with essentially your training, um, the, the American Society for Interior Designers? How do they approach sustainability? How are we all wrapping this into that ideology shift of there's no, dis- there's no innovation out of this. We do need to keep thinking about this currently differently in order to get into where we need to go. How does that all sort of play into this? Well, I said it a few seconds ago to yeah. design. We have to design our way out of it. Yeah, okay. Um, all these problems are design problems, right? All of these material issues are design issues. All of these product problems, you know, the, the, I think one of the trigger points in the world of interior design was when we started talking about embodied carbon, mm-hmm. right? So that was kind of a game changer for interior designers who realized, wow, you know, all of the product that we're putting into these buildings, we know we have operational carbon emissions, that, that are emitted from these huge buildings and skyscrapers. But wow, now we know we have embodied carbon emissions that come from all of the products and the furniture and everything that goes inside of these buildings. So I think that's what now has designers thinking, okay, now we've got something that we can act on and we can measure for results. The d- designers always have a problem or uh, always have a challenge in that, you know, they are working with a client. Right. And so, um, you know, the client may not always, you know, it's so funny when you talk about design because you can talk to designers who are brilliant and are working on these amazing projects because they have the perfect client who wants to work with them and wants to listen to them. And, will eventually come to an amazing project. Um, but, you know, there's also on the, on the other side of that spectrum, there's tenant improvement projects where you've got a, a building landlord that doesn't want to spend anything and just wants to keep churning. So, you know, the, it goes back to what I said earlier. It's a really complicated conversation. And a lot of times, well, let me just tell you what we're doing at the American Society of Interior Designers. We're really stepping into this conversation and we're trying to tell our members, Hey, first of all, this is a journey. Okay. We, we don't have all the answers for you and, and we're not, you know, we're not professing to be experts in the conversation. There, there are, really are no experts in this conversation. And the biggest challenge we have is when we wait too long for our voice, because we feel like I don't want to be wrong. So I'm just not going to say anything. We're not going to break and, some dishes. We don't want to get too I, crazy. I, I don't want to break any dishes. Yeah. I'm not a dish breaker. Yes. I get that. Yeah. I get that. But, but you know, we want people to understand that it's a journey and we want them to come with us on the journey and we'll all figure it out together. For us, we want, we want to make sustainability as inclusive and as accessible as we possibly can. 
And that's not always that easy. Yeah, it's not. I think when we're talking about complex problems and sustainability now, I would love to actually then break it down into what the rough decision process or chain looks like for decision making that goes into a workspace. I think that's actually something that took me a long time uh, at Reapley to really understand, oh, this isn't just the architect. It's not just the property manager, not just the building owner, that there's five other identities in there that kind of go into this decision-making process. Could you highlight some of those steps for our audience so they go, oh, wow, there's so many people involved in making the space that I find myself in ready for me to work, ready for me to play. Could you highlight some of those stages and decision-making process in, in that? Oh, I mean, you have... I mean, you have contract furniture dealers that get involved in this process. You have countless manufacturers that get involved in this process. You have an entire design team, right? You've got the design principal who's, who's got the vision and, and, and is giving the design team the kind of direction and leadership they need to make the right product specification decisions and things like that. But the, the biggest challenge you're going to have anytime you're trying to work on a project um, of the stature where you're trying to really have a, 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 a low impact on the environment. If you don't program it very, very at the very beginning, yep. you're going to be in a lot of trouble. I, you know, I think that some of the biggest challenges are if you, if you decide too far down the path that you want to, that you want this to be a lead project or a well project um, it, it, it will never happen. You've got to program that, in from the very beginning and you've got to get ownership on board, right? Yep. You, you just, I don't even know if I could, I mean, if you look at something as simple as a, um, a boardroom. Yes. I mean, the number of manufacturers that are involved in that, the number of subcontractors that are involved in that. Um, and you know, you, I think one of the big challenges is you can be an interior designer. You can specify, Say you want to specify a conference room table that has PVC-free banding around the edges. And you can specify it, and you can have it in the RFP. And at the, at the 11th hour, you could have a dealer come into that thing and say, hey, um, I could probably get you a table with PVC-free banding. It's going to cost you. It's going to... I can probably save you 10% on this conference room table. If you just let me go with my, my supplier, it's, don't worry. I mean, come on, PVC, it's all over the place. And so little things like that happen over and over and over again. Right. Right. So it's, you know, we all, it's very easy to blame designers because at the end of the day, it's their project, but a lot of people, you know, get in there and have, have an impact, leave a footprint, (laughs) leave a footprint, a lot of voices and a lot of economic tweaking of saying, Hey, 10% here, 10% there. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know I didn't, I didn't give you like all the stages of design that you're probably looking for, but to me more impactful than all the stages is just all of the, all of the people. You did. That's exactly right. It's the voices. It's the amount of decisions that go into it that and and companies and those economic pressures of saying, hey, you know what? But I'm not we're working together on this project and five other projects. So I can maybe save you even more on these other projects if we bought. So there's a lot of decision making in there that that is is done at scale. Um, I'd love to get to your your sort of 
aha moment um, in this uh, with sustainability. We referenced it in the beginning, um, but what did that look like for you when you really started connecting the dots on sustainability, your own passion for it? What were those moments like? What were you like, hey, this is something's broken um, and then really starting to start to pursue that? You know, I, I think that, uh, like I said before, it's definitely a journey. Yeah. And for me, I would tell you that it probably started, uh, I was working for a manufacturer named Human Scale, mm. and I had the opportunity to work really closely. Um, I was doing workplace strategy for Human Scale. I was working really closely with their chief sustainability officer who was working on projects and initiatives. And we would work together and I would kind of take the work that she was doing and distill it into um, a language that we could share with the industry so that it had value. I think the biggest challenge a lot of companies have is how do we share what we're doing for the environment without looking like we're doing it just to market it. Right. And so you really have to try hard to be authentic and um, that takes work. Um, you can, you know, you can over market and, and really turn people off. And so I got, I had an opportunity to join a group called uh, Next Wave Plastics. Mm. And it was a group of manufacturers uh, at the time, maybe 10 or 11, that decided uh, to address of all the issues and problems out there to address ocean plastic. Because we knew that the oceans were filling up fast with plastic. Uh, there was a group out there called the Five Gyres Institute, was, which was producing some alarming research uh, that showed how fast we were filling the garbage. And so these manufacturers said, listen, if your bathtub is filling up with water, you don't freak out and start bailing it. You go to the faucet and you turn it off. And so that was our, our mantra. You got to turn off the faucet. And so we were working together, find, um, uh, a value, a manufacturing value to what we called ocean bound plastic. So we thought that if we could make, if we could make that a valuable material like PET plastic, people would save it before it got to the ocean and they would bring it to recycle centers. Like right now, the, the biggest problem with recycling plastic is, is that, it, you know, it has to be sorted so carefully. A manufacturer can't take seven different kinds of plastic and melt them all together right. and magically make something. So I think that that was my aha moment when I started working with these other manufacturers. We actually um, went to Bali one, one year to speak at the Our Oceans conference. And um, while I was at that conference, I had an opportunity to meet a lot of NGOs that were doing amazing things. And I, that was my moment when I said, wow, we are really in bad shape and we got to figure this out. And I think that I decided then that, you know, I'm not an environmental engineer, <laughs> not an engineer and consider myself a really smart person, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I better, I better figure it out. Like, Somebody's got to, right. I'm, I'm not going to hurt anything by trying to figure it out. So, you know, that was sort of my aha moment was 
being surrounded by these NGOs, people that were doing amazing things, um, to try to to try to do what they could. Uh, that is yes, I love that. Um, speaks to again uh, a little bit my my aha moment, and I've said this before was sort of it was fashion based, um, and so it 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 was clothing based where it was like wait a second. I'm supposed to throw this away. <laughs> like I thought someone could repair this or something. Um, yeah. And, and so that was for me, that was, a, that was a big moment, but again, material based. I, I, I so, felt like, so fashion is your trigger. Like uh, it, it was, your... it was at the time I've since gone the other way and said pure minimalist and gone the black t-shirt, uh, simple oh, yeah. jeans route, um, which has been fun I... for a little bit. Um, and so it's the pandemic helped that it I did. Think. It definitely did. It was like, Oh, this is totally <laughs> appropriate for being at my desk at home. Um, oh, yeah. Pants with drawstrings and elastic. Ex- perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Exactly. Um, how do we help others start to have those moments? Um, where, you know, where we, you all as designers have such that, and I'm sure this is something that you bring to your constituency of saying, Hey, this is how you approach this topic. Um, it can be sensitive to some, but there's probably some amount of savings somewhere. Um, there are ways to think about reuse. There's ways to think about this from a a sustainability standpoint. How do you approach that? How do you teach your constituency or not teach, but maybe offer conversational points or solutions for, Hey, I I think my client might be interested, but I'm nervous to bring this up to them. Is there, are there talking points for that? That's, that's one of, that's one of the tools that we're trying to create for our members. You know, it's, it's sort of an interesting industry in that on the commercial side, you know, the designers are very far ahead of where we are on the residential side. And, you know, everybody has a slightly different theory on, on how that, how that happens or or why that is. I, I think it's because, you know, if you are on the commercial side, your client is very much public and they can't really hide. And so their behavior is very much on display, but but when we go home at night, we're very much anonymous. And so, Gar, you, you don't know if I have low flow shower heads or not. You can right. assume because I'm concerned that I do, but I might have this massive, you know, rainfall shower head in my bathroom that I, and I may take 30 minute showers and you'll never know. <laughs> yes. So on the residential side, the clients aren't driving that conversation like they have been on the commercial side, right? Right. But we specify, boy, last year um, we specified, designers specified about $350 billion worth of product, okay? Mm. And about about $120 billion of that was residential furniture. How much of that do you think was office furniture. Oh, I, that's our world. Um, and it's a lot. I know that. Can I tell you that it's not even a quarter of the residential furniture? Whoa. Okay. Yeah. That's surprising. That's terrifying. Um, <laughs> seeing, seeing in our I mean, world, how much we see, but that's, that's yeah. insane. Yeah. We, we just assume that all those buildings and skyscrapers, you know, are packed full of furniture, right? And we yeah. just 
assume that the commercial side of things is just ma- there's just a lot of residential designers out there specifying a lot of residential furniture. Okay. Yeah. The anonymity is that's fascinating. I think you're 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 onto something there with you know, it's interesting. We actually see that a little bit inversely on our end where um so we've got some some company cohort friends and and they're all focused on Actually, in the fashion world, there might be in the fashion world where uh, it's kind of the opposite. They're focused on people's clothing, which is very much uh, somebody's identifying their their identity is based in their clothing, and they're showing the world this is what I care about. So they want to talk about how maybe the shirt they're wearing is sustainable, used from the X material, whatever it might be. And on our end, uh, we tend to focus on company operations. And we tend to focus on uh, increasing the utilization rate of some furniture or the some sort of operation that uh, allows for reuse. Not the most marketable topic. Um, and so it's fascinating where that's something I hadn't thought about of, of the different inverses, even within an organization where commercially, it's probably not the most marketable to talk about how you weren't reusing your commercial chairs as much as you, you know, your, the public would like. But boy, are they going to talk about that plastic packaging? Um, and and so it's, it is interesting yeah. where there's there's a couple uh, marketing related decision making around what do we talk about with sustainability? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's we have you know twenty three thousand members here at ASID, right? And um, 40, 45 chapters across the country, and so we know that we can create a critical mass in mm-hmm. this conversation. We just we just need to get everybody collected and directed and all of us in step moving in the right direction. And that's what we're really trying to do with our sustainability program. We're trying to create, well, we've, we've already created these principles of design excellence so that anytime that ASID talks about an amazing design project or amazing space, we're consistently using the right language around sustainability to describe that space. So we'll never say this is an amazing project. We're giving it an award right? when that project never addressed sustainability. So we're going to, you know, we're trying to get um, consistency in that conversation. We're working on advocacy right now, which means in our, all of these chapters, can we give them templates to allow them to build their own sustainability team so that they can start to advocate and champion around sustainability, but but do it in a way that Boston chapter or the New England chapter talks about sustainability, like the Northern California right. chapter talks about sustainability. And then, you know, obviously we're committed to knowledge and learning. And so we're working really hard to create and curate a library of content. But the challenge is that a lot of times we think that the best way to build credibility is with content. And I, I want to make sure that as we build our sustainability program, it's, it's an inclusive and accessible program. And I don't want people to be, we're already overwhelmed. Everybody's overwhelmed. And so I don't want people to think that if I want to be a part of ASID's sustainability movement, I got to go get a certification or I got to, I got to get an extra 20, learning units every year. That's so we really want to have a cadence to the programming that we share with members so that 
they get a sense that it's a, there's a progression. Yeah. It's chronological and we're going to build it up and we're going to take them. We're all going to go. We're all going to, it's a journey, right? So that's what we're trying to do. Um, community that's based. That's our goal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that. Uh, parting thoughts. Um, and any last minute questions, um, what would you want to leave our audience with? Well, I, I think that it's, it's, you know, it's a funny thing to talk about, but, um, I've had a couple of conversations now with, with designers that talk about this white box Hmm. and designers, you know, always seem to feel like they have to start out with a white box. So, you know, a tenant moves into a new building, right? And the first thing we have to do is demo, right? Even if you watch the HG shows, right? Oh, the guy's got the sledgehammer. Let's demo. It's the fun part. And today, yeah, it's a (laughs) fun part. I get to just knock the hell out of everything. And and today, you know, I watch that. I'm like, oh, there's just nothing wrong with those kitchen cabinets. I get it. I get it. They're maybe they're ugly, but man, dude, can't we do something with those? Some right? great woods, um, some great, yeah, great grain. So, yeah. Yeah. Can't we do something to keep them out of the damn landfill? Yeah, right. Right. And, and I think that I would love to, you know, work with our design community to get them to think outside of that white box so that they walk into, you know, I, I, we, we did a, uh, we did an episode uh, with with this guy. Uh, he is awesome. He he runs um, a couple of different businesses. Uh, Russell uh, Russell Goldberg, I believe, is his last name. Rux Design is is one of his businesses. Stickbulb is a company uh, of his that makes these beautiful lights out of the wood that's repurposed from New York city water towers that you see on the top of the buildings. And, and, uh, Russell first said to us, he said, you know, there is an aesthetic to ethics. And he said, I think we should all be talking about the aesthetics of ethics because doesn't that have a beauty to it? And I think that's what we need is we need designers to come into these buildings and say, you know, it would be a lot easier for all of us to throw all this stuff away and start with a clean white box. But let's find the beauty in keeping some of this stuff out of the landfill and and repurposing it. And can't we find beauty in that narrative that has value in how we talk about design? I love that. I, I could not end that any better. Um, <laughs> I, I, I love that. It's, it, I was only introduced to, to the, that how designers think about the, that white box only a couple months ago. Um, so that was fascinating then. And again, to think that every, everyone wants to start from scratch. It's like, wait, 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 we can slow down. There's good, there's good bones here. Um, and we yeah, can work yeah. with those bones. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a cultural thing too, right? I think like you go to Europe and, and they talk about heirloom pieces and, you know, they talk about, uh, you know, some of the famous brands that are out there and how collectible they are. And, you know, you, you, you buy it and you keep it forever Yes. and you take good care of it and you pass it on. And we just aren't quite there yet in the U S for some reason, it's like, you want to you want to show status, 
you got to get all new stuff. I could right? not- like we don't we have this weird like you know when you see we call it shabby chic, right? You see like old stuff. We don't necessarily appreciate it like we should. We almost judge people a little bit. Yep. Oh, what you got look at that couch. Like you can't wow, you can't you afford a new couch, man? Right? Yep. It's I fashion's would, the same thing. It's fashion's the same thing. Um John, uh thank you for all this insight, sharing all of this. Uh I look forward to uh being on Break Some Dishes. Um, yeah. coming up, we're going to break some dishes with we us. Got, well, let's go break some dishes. Uh, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks car. Appreciate it. Yeah.